Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, trade, tariffs, and Trump. And Richard, we are recording this episode in the wake of an announcement from the Trump administration that they are going to be imposing tariffs on steel and aluminum, 25% on imported steel, 10% on imported aluminum. And I'll get you to the legal questions this presents in a moment, but I want to just start with the economics. The president describes this, this is in the statement from the White House, as combating unfair trade practices that distort markets. The administration's argument here basically being that we've lost too many jobs and too much of our productive capacity with these materials in the U.S. and that the primary culprit is the Chinese subsidizing their production of those materials. Now, uh, our regular listeners on the show will know that you are generally a free trader. To what extent does it complicate the analysis when you have a trading partner like China that's engaged in these kinds of practices? Well, the first of all, the president originally announced this as a national security arrangement, I believe, and that's simply bizarre because we get most of the steel from allies, and in fact, it's a source of national strength that we can uh, shore up our alliances by trading with people on whom we have to depend for military stuff. I think the Chinese exports into the United States are a trivial fraction of the whole of my memory serves me collect, you're talking about something like 3%, which can't possibly make a dent in anything. And also the question of why it is that these things are dislocating uh, American trade. There are two answers. One is many American mills, particularly the smaller ones in specialty steel, are doing rather well. And second, you also have to remember that uh, the steel that comes into the United States from overseas uh, goes to other consumers. These people actually make employment. They sell things in the United States and overseas. So you don't want to simply look at jobs lost in the steel industry. You also want to look at jobs that are gained everywhere else in the economy and that the president refuses to do. Uh, there was a number quoted once which said that it's going to add $175 to the cost of an American car. And the reaction of the president was to poo-poo that small number. But if you're talking about selling 5 million cars, you know, it turns out this is a serious figure. And in fact, uh, when companies compete, price differences, even at a small level, always make a difference. It's a kind of a delusion that many people have is that if you just raise the price a little bit, nothing will happen. Well, you do that 10 times and nothing happens with each of the little things. When you put them all together, then a great deal has to happen. The truth is these functions are roughly continuous. You raise prices a little, uh, you lose a little. You raise them a lot, you lose more. But there's no sort of safety zone in which you don't lose anything. So as usual, when you put these restrictions on trade, uh, the domestic losses outweigh the domestic gains. Then when you add to this all of the difficulties that you have in foreign relationships and other areas, you have two things to worry about. Uh, one is there's the question of retaliation, at which point all this stuff can spread. And secondly, there's always the question as to whether or not when you basically stick your fingers in the eyes of a trading partner for no particular reason, it's going to 
pay you um, some difficulties in some other area. So right now we're trying to get the Chinese to cooperate with us to rein in the North Koreans. Uh, this is certainly not going to increase their order to help them. And so this is sort of an all-around dumb move. The numbers seem to be arbitrary. The only people in favor of it turn out to be Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, and Peter Navarro, uh, the uh, full-time protectionist trade representative. Uh, Gary Cohen left the government precisely because this was happening. Larry Kudlow is said to be going there. I hope he has the fortitude and strength uh, to persuade the president of the error of his ways. Uh, this is what we call a self-inflicted wound of the worst sort. You look at the stock market, it will cost you 5 or 10% of the stock market price by the time this thing plays out. And if you're talking about an economy, in order to save a few jobs and to lose a lot more, you may shave off a couple hundred billion dollars or more in the stock market. This is just plain dumb. Uh, Trump does not understand the mechanisms of free trade. He keeps thinking of this as though we're getting shortchanged in these deals. If he understood the full overall situation, he would immediately back off. But it just doesn't seem to be in his DNA, at least at present. A lot of Republicans in Congress, including the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, have opposed the president on this policy. Explain for us the legal dynamics here, Richard. Why did the president have the power to decide this unilaterally, and to what degree does the Congress have the power to hem the White House in here? Well, on the first question, a lot of this was done in the Section 232, which is supposed to deal with national security. Um, I regard that as a sham argument in this particular case, and you know, I think it's quite likely that if he tries to put these into place, there will be a mass of people domestically and from overseas who are going to argue that it's an abuse of presidential power. You you can't create an imagine uh, in a national emergency or a national security question when none of them exist. In terms of the congressional situation, um, I think generally what has happened is in a free trade world, you tend to give the president a great deal of power because you have to make these deals very quickly and effectively. Now you've got an anti-dealer in there, and so all the residual power to the executive is a source of great distress. Congress can certainly pass legislation to do something about it. But if they do so, the president can surely veto it. And then you're going to have to have the Democrats to come along with the Republicans to override that veto. And one of the things that's kind of sad about all of this is the Republicans, at least some of them, have spoken out. The Democrats have maintained a stony silence on this issue because if one recalls, Hillary Clinton also came out against the Trans-Pacific Partnership and also has sort of vaguely anti-free trade aspirations. She may not believe them inside, but that's certainly the way the party is playing. It. And the further left they go, politically, the more likely it is that they're going to have free trade as a capitalist plot and therefore oppose it as well. So it's not at all clear that you can dislodge the president on this. And I think we now know enough that trying to persuade him of the error of his ways is a fool's errand. I hope, in fact, that Kudlow is able to do this. Brian is able to do it. I think that if he, Trump takes account of the fact that he lost, I guess, a district in uh in Pennsylvania today, where he had carried the presidential thing by 20 points, he would realize that this stuff is not really playing very well today. And there's a simple explanation for it. Most of the difficulties in the domestic economy have not been losses to foreign trade as such. They're losses to inefficient domestic structure. As he's deregulated, uh, people have less of a willingness to go overseas, to go to another state, or to just plain shut down. And we've seen employment numbers that have been very attractive. So why he's starting to worry about job losses when the unemployment rate is around 3 or 3.5% is simply a mystery as far as I'm concerned. Uh, his deregulatory program works 
works at home. It would work overseas. He seems to be a mercantilist who believes in free trade and then worries so much about balance of payments in an international setting, an issue on which he doesn't seem to have any real understanding at all. Let me follow up with you there on that point about the dislocations. Free trade may make society wealthier in the aggregate, but most people will concede that there are individuals and and firms that lose out because of it. And increasingly, there is anxiety about places that lose out, places whose economies, for instance, may be inextricably bound up with some trade-sensitive industry. Um, If we have open markets and we anticipate those potential downsides, Richard, what ought we do for the people and the places that fall behind? Well, first of all, if there's a causation question lingering in this, have they fallen behind because of free trade or because they haven't modernized their own local economy? So uh, suppose what we did is we said you cannot take companies and send their plans overseas, just cannot do it. Uh, There's been a huge internal movement inside the United States. If you're in a state which has a bad trade policy, say Ohio, or one time Indiana, but no longer surely, and they decide to go to Tennessee, you're not going to give any compensation to anybody. And so you knock off the foreign situation, I think you're going to see a lot of internal migration for which no compensation would be given. And so the first point, therefore, is why are we worried about this? The second alternative is more frightening. What we do is we keep you in place. We require you to keep a high payroll. Your products become uncompetitive in a very competitive world, and you just shut down and go bankrupt. Now are we going to give compensation? And so the real difficulty in this issue is why do you single out uh, foreign trade as a source of compensation when domestic trade or local bankruptcy is not? And the other way to think about this is what is the best compensation that anybody can have? It's a vibrant economy in which there's now going to be a real demand for workers who are otherwise displaced. And that seems to be what's going on here. You see a employer saying, gee, you know, we have to hire some people who have criminal records. That's not done when you have slack employment and it's moving up here. So that is certainly something which is better. And in any event, if all of this is wrong, and I really don't think that it is, uh, the best approach is one that Henry Olson announced the other day in the Wall Street Journal. What you do is you try to give targeted grants so that people can retrain and maybe have unemployment compensation in the interim. Generally speaking, I'm, in, I'm not in favor of the government doing the retraining. That always turns out to be rather unresponsive. But if you give people scholarships or fellowships or money grants that they could use to get themselves into a community college or a for-profit program of their own choosing, that would certainly be far cheaper than any of this. I regard that as a pragmatic situation. Ideally, I really don't think it ought to be done. I think more deregulation is by far the better cure. But if it's a question of choosing between evils, you can pay a lot of shekels, a lot of dollars out to people to get retraining uh, before you even begin to approach the cost uh, to the government at large of stopping the free trade. And remember this, the transfer payments are that. There's money going to somebody as well as money coming from somebody. It's never a costless transaction, but the cost is in 100%. When you start putting real restrictions on free trade, huge numbers of transactions are just lost, and the ability to cover for them in the domestic market is a much more complicated situation. So I would certainly favor that alternative, and then I would leave it to the political minds, of which I'm certainly not one, to figure out what kind of compromise you would want to hash out to get the president to back off this particular campaign, which I think is a real intellectual and economic disaster. 
want to have you comment on a different issue, but one that is related. In the aftermath of the tariff announcement, the Trump administration also announced that it would be blocking an effort by Broadcom, which is a company based in Singapore, to take over Qualcomm, the American company that develops wireless technology and is likely going to be a key player in the development of, of 5G technology because Broadcom has a number of joint ventures with China and the feeling was that this could really be putting China in the driver's seat of deciding what the future of 5G technology looks like. Uh, Broadcom actually dropped the effort on the day that we're recording this. Contrast for us the national security case here with the one on the tariffs. Well, the tariff case, one doesn't even know what national security is. What you're saying is we need to develop a domestic capacity large enough to allow us in the event of a full-scale war to increase our steel production. We have some idle capacity in this country. If you raise the price, you could bring it back in. We have many allies from whom we could buy steel for a war situation. There's no sensitive technology going out to anybody else. This is just a dumb maneuver all the way around. When it comes to national security, this is a huge exception to the general free trade principle, and it's one that's generally unappreciated. About seven or eight years ago, I ran into a friend of mine from the University of Chicago named Robert Rosner, who's coming out to the Hoover Institution as part of a program to figure out what the policy should be on the national security exceptions to the free trade principle. And it was an unclassified meeting, so I said, do you mind if I come along? And I did for a couple of days listen to these people as they agonized about what's going on. And the problems are extremely serious. Uh, You take some technology, and then the question is, can you send it overseas or can you not? And some of this stuff seems to be relatively innocuous, standard consumer products that could be gotten in other places. Nobody wants to stop that. But then when you start dealing with sensitive technologies which have military applications, you simply don't say to people they could sell it to anybody. Sometimes they could only sell it to limited people. And then all of the complications start to come. Uh, what version of the thing can you sell? Can you sell them the state-of-the-art version, or do you have to have a kind of a knockoff version, which is a little bit less inferior than the ones that the United States uses domestically? If you sell it overseas, can you put restrictions on resale, on the kinds of purposes for which it could be used, and so forth? And sure enough, as you start going through these individual deals, what seems to be a single page all of a sudden becomes a very complicated volume, as everybody's trying to get as much trade as is possible without jeopardizing uh, the national security. Now, the Chinese are known to be intellectual property thieves. This has been documented God knows how many times. And I myself know a number of investors who simply flat out say they will not invest anything in China because the Chinese then require you to form a joint venture. They then require you to put your intellectual property and your trade secrets into that joint venture. Then they take it out and send it to another American, another Chinese company, which uses it full bore. And then what they do is they basically lift all the licenses that allow the American company to do there. So in six or seven easy steps, what they do is they engage in a massive theft of technology. Now, maybe that's not going to really a lot of people if you're talking about better ways to make dumplings or something of that sort. But when it starts to talk about 5G technology, which has obvious military application, I think you have every right to be concerned with the fact that a disreputable trading partner will, in fact, exercise its control rights and get the leakage of this information. And so I am sure that in this particular case, it was a situation which was discussed not only with Qualcomm, who I gather did uh, petition the government because they were upset about the thing, 
And it was probably at the behest of many people in the military as well. Now, the other thing, of course, is what about the price? And I was thinking about this for a while. And suppose what you really want to do is to steal technology for use in your own military efforts. You will pay a premium over what the market will bear because you're the only one who's going to get the benefit from theft. Uh, in the domestic market, no shareholder is going to be able to get that. So you'll be able to get a winning bid. And if the bid, therefore, looks rather high relative to the asset value or the performance value, then you have to be very doubtful. And Qualcomm, which is a firm that I've worked with and for for many years on and off, you know, has certainly been getting its lumps in the domestic market. I gather they've gotten to a big fight with Apple, who says they're not going to put uh, Qualcomm chips into its next generation of phones. Uh, So if you're seeing a premium, being offered for stock of a company which is having to fight off a number of domestic values, then the hypothesis that what you're trying to do is to buy technology to steal technology seems to me to gain in force. So I have no opposition to the Trump thing. If somebody comes along and explains to me that I'm sadly misstate what's going on with this information technology transfer stuff, I'm always willing to be corrected. But from my own brief experience working in this particular area, I was struck at the seriousness with which this is taken and the difficulty that the problem has. And under those circumstances, you should think of the acquisition as a massive transfer of information, which would never be allowed in the context of the sale of goods. Why then should it be allowed in the context of a sale of an entire country? So uh, the military exception, the security exception to the free trade principle is very large. It has universally been accepted by just about everybody. And I don't think that the president engaged in any abuse uh, when he acknowledged those particular claims. And if you saw the Wall Street Journal story this morning, um, they basically said, we hope he's in good pants. We think he's done the right thing, at least from what we can see. And so I think the correct attitude is to be slightly hysterical about all the president threatens to do with respect to sales of standard commodities or imports of commodities, let alone sales. Sales are much more dangerous. And to be reasonably supportive of him on the other thing. As I always say with Trump, it's always a la carte. There's some things on the menu that you'd rather not have, and there are other things on the menu which you think properly belong there. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.